Hello and welcome to Disputed with your hosts Elsa Bloomer from Calgary and Andrew McComb from Toronto. And this episode is called Return to Work. Broadly speaking, it's about issues that organisations may encounter with employees returning to the workplace. But first, what is the workplace? Even before COVID, this was not a straightforward legal question. And thanks to the past two years of global pandemic, answering that question is now even more complicated. How we work and where we work is changing. More fundamentally, are we experiencing an evolution in what it means to work, i.e. work as a series of deliverables as opposed to 10 hours in the office Monday to Friday? That's a really interesting idea, and one that hasn't been revisited in the modern Western world for over a century, and arguably even since the Industrial Revolution. As a former history student, I personally find that a fascinating question, but I appreciate that's perhaps for a different podcast. So we start this episode by looking at the big ticket issue at the moment, and that is mandatory vaccination policies. When can they be challenged, and on what grounds? We then look more broadly at this definition of the workplace and consider what recent case law tells us about the attitudes to employee rights when it comes to remote working, including the right to disconnect, pay equity and discrimination risks. And talking us through these issues are Jeff Landman and Preston Brash. Jeff is a partner in our Calgary office and he helps employers negotiate employment contracts, policies and procedures as well as representing them in litigation, arbitration, and human rights claims. Before joining us, Jeff was the Vice President of Labour Relations and Governance for a major commercial airline. Preston Brash is an associate in our employment group, and his practice includes advising on employment agreements, immigration, and privacy law matters. And if you want to read more about this topic, our global employment and labour team has produced a series of short papers looking at the opportunities and risks of the transforming workplace. And a link to this is in the description. Okay, so this episode is about returning to the workplace. Jeff, start us off. What are some big ticket questions that employers are asking you right now when it comes to moving back into the physical office space? Sure. Well, I'm happy to kick it off. And obviously, Preston, feel free to jump in with any of your observations, too. In terms of the first set of issues that are really quite topical for many organizations are how to deal with mandatory vaccination and having rolled out in many cases mandatory vaccination policies what now is sort of the actions that are being taken as a result of that and what sort of trends in terms of disputes are we seeing from individuals who are challenging those mandatory vaccination policies? I think too, one of the questions that some employers are asking are what types of accommodations they need to provide to employees, what their duties are as employers when employees assert that they have grounds for accommodation when it comes to vaccination policies, such as religious grounds or medical exemptions. The collection of this data, this information also raises concerns about privacy issues. So employees are concerned about who has access to their medical information, how it's being stored, and what's being done with their information ultimately. So maybe starting from the top there with the types of disputes that Jeff has flagged, 
What are some of the bases on which people are objecting to mandatory vax policies or some of these return to work type policies that we're seeing in in the courts and how are they playing out? Yeah, it's a really good question, Andrew. Just to back it up, pre-pandemic, the ability for an organization or an employer to impose a mandatory vaccination policy would have been very, very narrow and, and really only in those cases where there was a true necessity. So if you think about sort of the hospital setting or some some other very narrow types of circumstances where that level of safety was required, would a, would a mandatory vaccination policy really have been defensible? And that landscape has shifted greatly in terms of what we are seeing with organizations as well as what, what there is public acceptance for in the debate around it. And so in the last six months or so, we would have seen a lot of organizations rolling out mandatory vaccination policies through the end of the summer of 2021 and into the fall. And then we started seeing sort of that first wave of challenges. And interestingly, unlike the pre-pandemic context, there seems to be a fair bit of support emerging, particularly in the labor arbitration context and from human rights tribunals around support for the reasonableness and the necessity of mandatory vaccination policies for many employers. And so, you know, those tend to be sort of the primary grounds that employers really need to look at in terms of justifying the imposition of a mandatory vaccine policy. You know, ultimately, what is the necessity in the workplace to, to maintain health and safety? And then is the policy itself reasonable in terms of the circumstances? So the test that is emerging appears to be one of necessity and reasonableness in the context of your organization and possibly industry. But what does a reasonable mandatory vaccination policy look like? Yeah, absolutely. What we're seeing is, I'll take the labor cases, for example, arbitrators are taking a look at what is the background commercial context and what are the safety considerations. In a number of the cases, the requirements of third-party customers or clients or whoever the employer services, if they require vaccination to attend on site, that's been a pretty significant consideration. Very difficult to keep running your business as an organization if you're not allowed to send your employees to a customer's site. In the context of, of the labor cases, unionized work environments, the question also comes up as to, you know, what is the ability of management under the collective agreement and management rights to be able to impose the policy? Is there discretion there? And otherwise, what else does the collective agreement say about vaccination or the ability to roll out policies? And so in the labor space, that's certainly one of the trends that we're seeing. Then also in the human rights context, and as Preston had said, the discussion around whether or not the policy is reasonable or otherwise an employer requires reasonable accommodation, the discussion's really focused on exemptions for medical reasons or for religious reasons. In terms of the medical reasons, you know, we've gotten guidance from the various provincial medical associations and colleges of, of medical professionals that's really defined what would be an appropriate medical exemption. Here in Alberta, just as one example, we've got guidance that Generally speaking, it's, it's very narrow in terms of severe allergic reaction or adverse reactions, for example, inflammation of the heart. There doesn't really seem to be any supported grounds from the medical guidance around a permanent exemption. It's really a temporary exemption subject to review. On the religious exemptions, the guidance that has been emerging has really been around whether or not 
the prohibition against vaccination is fundamental to the belief system or whether or not it's just somebody's personally held belief. I mean, the way to think of that really in, in sort of layperson's terms is it's not enough to simply be religious and to also have an individual objection to vaccination. It needs to be that the objection to vaccination is, is part of your belief system. And so and that's really a very high level of overview in terms of the trends that we've been seeing from those two forums in terms of labor and human rights. And to add to that, the important thing to remember is that this is going to be a very context and fact-specific analysis. So adjudicators are going to look at the specific work environment, the specific risks that are present in those work environments. And so what, what is reasonable in one workplace and at one point in time may not be reasonable in another workplace or even in that same workplace later down the road, for example, if the pandemic subsides or if the risk to employees isn't as, as great as it is now, vaccination policies that are reasonable today may eventually become unreasonable, even in the same work environment. Jeff, to catch on a point that you raised about collective agreements, I think it makes total sense to think that one of the first places you'd have to look in the labor context to get an understanding of the legality or appropriateness of a mandatory vaccination policy be the collective agreement. I mean, to what extent is a mandatory vaccination policy becoming an issue in collective bargaining when new agreements or old agreements are, are reopened or new agreements are negotiated. Is that a hot button issue? Is that something that's in focus for union rep and management when they get together to negotiate a new agreement? Yeah, it's a really great question, Andrew. I mean, we don't have we don't have a lot of examples of that just yet, but a few cases that we can think of where we've got employers and unions getting back to the table for collective bargaining, there is some of that discussion that's taking place. And also, obviously, as Preston mentioned, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And so different unions have different stances and some have taken public stances in favor of vaccination publicly. And so that is an issue that has been emerging, obviously, but for the last year or two, obviously, wouldn't really have been front and center, except in, in those circumstances, like in the health sector that we mentioned earlier. What about the disciplinary side of vaccination policies? So if an employee actually refuses to get a vaccine altogether, what are some reasonable or unreasonable disciplinary actions that employers can take? Yeah, a pretty significant trend has really been, and this is in both the union and non-union context, has been where the policy has been rolled out. There's usually been some period of notice. Sometimes those periods have been quite short, depending on the employer and, and depending on the necessity in their workplace. And other times the rollout has been longer over the course of a few weeks or even a few months. But failing compliance with the policy, what a lot of organizations have done is then either implemented an administrative leave or a suspension, presumably or ostensibly to allow the employee to go out and, and comply with the policy and get vaccinated, failing which termination after that period in time. We have seen some organizations that have just moved straight to termination, but a lot of organizations have put in place that administrative leave period or suspension period to allow for compliance. And uh, then in terms of the termination, quite a few organizations have done that on a with cause basis. So employee has failed to comply with the policy to the extent that they have exercised their personal choice not to be vaccinated and there's a cost to it, that cost is for the employee to bear. In a few other cases, we have seen employers take a, a softer approach and do it on a without cause basis and, and negotiate a severance package. So 
very common trend has been that suspension period with the termination for cause following. I think that it's interesting to see some of the signals that we're getting from policymakers as well. So recently, the federal health minister came out saying that provinces should consider implementing mandatory vaccinations with employment insurance as well. You're seeing applicants may not be eligible for employment insurance if they've been terminated due to failure to comply with the vaccination policy. And so, you know, there's sometimes I think it's hard to think about the ways that these things interplay. But in some of the arbitration decisions that we've seen, they've talked about the fact that there's no legislative support for vaccination policies. In one instance, no support in the collective agreement. And so as those policies shift, I think that continues to add a bit more weight to the reasonableness for companies to implement these policies. Yeah, and to Preston's point, there are a number of decisions already in the labor context in particular that have taken the pandemic context into consideration and found that those disciplinary measures are reasonable in the circumstances. And so there are a number of decisions that that find the other way, but overall the trend seems to be far greater support for an employer position. You know, ultimately it comes down to what else is an employer supposed to do? You've got a wide variety of restrictions that are in place overall in general for the public. You've got a duty to to maintain a, a safe workplace. Ultimately, if there is a situation where an employee has chosen not to become vaccinated, what else is an employer supposed to do at that point? Another issue that I'll just flag that's interesting, and we don't have any decisions on yet, but I'm thinking about this in the, in the non-union context, where an employer has terminated somebody for non-compliance with vaccine policy, what does that mean for their duty to mitigate to go out and to find another job? You know. If you are refusing to become vaccinated and you then have to go out and look for another job where many employers are requiring as a condition of employment that you be vaccinated, it raises a really interesting question around whether or not that employee can mitigate their losses, whether or not that amounts to a failure on their part to do it, and also just questions, again, the reasonableness of their decision not to do it in the first place. So. It's certainly an argument that's live that I think we are potentially going to get some guidance on at some point in the not too distant future. Yeah, just to follow up on that point, because I'm interested to hear you talk about notice periods and termination and what's reasonable in the context of the pandemic, because, you know, another trend that we're, we're seeing is, you know, what is a reasonable notice period to give an employee generally in the event of a termination in the context of a pandemic or post-pandemic economy or labor market that is, of course, of a totally different type of dynamic to what it would have been pre-March 2020 or even long before that. So, I mean, is it appropriate to suggest that an employer has to bear in mind the difficulties of this employee getting another job when they're determining what is a reasonable notice period for termination? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a relevant question to ask from the employer's perspective. You know, overall, what constitutes reasonable notice in a given situation is always fact dependent and, you know, probably familiar with, with the usual factors, age, length of service, nature of the position, but then also the availability of comparable employment. And so the pandemic context really puts a, a novel spin on that. At least as far as I'm aware, there's been cases that, you know, that have gone both ways on that issue. And it's really been a question of, of the overall context and the facts. 
you know, on the one hand, it may be the situation that ultimately the decision to terminate was made before the pandemic, although at this point, those cases are obviously two years in the past. And otherwise, the nature of the position is such that despite the pandemic, there's still the availability of alternative work. You know, for example, in the case of somebody who works remotely or who has skills that really are transferable between industries, there's arguably less of a position to take that the COVID context should be relevant. At the same time, for somebody who was terminated in, you know, in the middle of a lockdown period and has a type of job that otherwise would have been potentially put on hold as a result of restrictions or otherwise might be difficult to replace, you know, that might arguably be a consideration that needs to be taken into account, both by the employer at the time of termination, what's being offered, but also by whatever adjudicator might ultimately hear, might hear the case if, if a settlement isn't able to be obtained between the parties directly. And to your earlier comments about mitigation as well, I imagine you, this is also factual and so context specific, but one of the challenges for somebody looking for work in a lockdown context in the pandemic context is getting out there, you know, networking, getting interviews, getting meetings, making contact with people through traditional things that you think about, about, you know, the path to get a good next job are so much harder to do in context and, and complicate the kind of analysis that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's completely changed the way you might ordinarily go about looking for work. Obviously, for many people, an, an online search and, and online efforts would just naturally be a part of it. But to your point, Andrew, I mean, depending on the nature of work, depending on you know how important networking and informal discussion is to, to turning up that new role, that's obviously changed significantly over the last two years. It's an excellent point. So on the topic of remote working, obviously kind of many employers have gone to fully remote workplaces, us kind of included in that. I mean, some are, are planning to go um, fully remote kind of permanently and some are looking towards more of a hybrid model. So what are some key concerns and considerations that employers need to bear in mind when they are planning to move towards either a fully remote or a hybrid work from home model? Concerns that employers should bear in mind are, for one, confidentiality concerns from clients' perspective. So in companies that work with sensitive data or information, suddenly you have employees who are at home and, and potentially exposing that information to family members or friends inadvertently. You also have potential occupational health and safety or workers' compensation concerns. For example, in one case out of Quebec, there was an employee who logged off from their computer and then fell down the stairs during a break and was found to qualify for workers' compensation. Ergonomics in a workplace setting at home, those can lead to long-term issues. And then if this continues for a long period of time, you may have people who become disabled or who may require accommodations for their workspace. And whereas traditionally that would be accomplished in the physical workplace, now employers will need to think about how do you how do you accommodate an employee who's working from home and may require some of those accommodations. And then the other concern is if you have employees who are working in other jurisdictions, that raises all sorts of questions about which laws apply. If they're in a different country, there might be some tax implications, for example, that the company would have to think about. And then that also raises concerns with privacy legislation. So for example, in Alberta, we have PIPA, which requires that personal information can't be transferred cross-border 
without prior and, and informed consent. And so if you have an employee, for example, working in another country who's dealing with personal information of customers or other employees on a regular basis, and that information is being transferred cross-border, that could lead to inadvertent violations or breaches of privacy legislation. I think it's really interesting what we're seeing is this expansion of the definition of the workspace and what constitutes the workspace. And I think when you look at cases all kind of pre-pandemic, it's it's almost more of a control-based definition. You know, the workspace is a place where the employer controls the activities. But obviously that that doesn't work in this context anymore. And and on that topic of how you define the workspace, there's also a cost element, right? Because who bears you mentioned kind of ergonomic and equipment that employees use now in in a different workspace outside of the office at home who bears the cost really of improving the type of equipment um, that an employee is using if they're working from home and it also the jurisdiction point kind of links to that as well because you mentioned that case about an employee falling down the stairs depending on where they are working how do you determine the jurisdiction that governs a claim by an employee against an employer if they suffer an accident in the workspace, which is no longer the physical space where an employer exercises control over the activities? I mean, those are all great questions. And and Preston's overview, I think, really, you know, helps identify that this is a series of near-term and immediate issues, but then there's also wider implications. And it really takes in the entire life cycle around work. And, you know, and so these questions around what constitutes the workplace is definitely one of the fundamental questions. You know, also you'd mentioned earlier case law over the last few years that was decided around defining the workplace and thinking about obviously the the postal worker decision in which it really dealt with whether or not people, you know, postal workers who are delivering the mail are in the workplace in the control of, of Canada Post when they're, you know, walking up your front lawn or up to your front gate. And I think what what this current pandemic raises is The question around if in a more intentional way people are going to be working from home or working remotely in some other third space on a regular basis as part of the terms of their employment, what are the issues and what are the obligations of an employer to ensure that that space meets certain regulations or certain standards? And and I don't think we know yet because that's, that's really just developing. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't put in a plug for the firm in terms of We've recently launched in the last few weeks a transforming workplace initiative globally for our clients to help them work through these issues on an integrated basis because it takes in a range of issues. You know, we've talked about which laws apply in which jurisdictions for employers. We've talked about occupational health and safety, human rights, privacy. The other questions that are going to be raised, obviously, too, are questions around what space do employers even want to hold to work in and and on what basis are they requiring people to come in? There's an interesting tension, Jeff and and Preston, and what you guys are raising between the idea that a, a company might have obligations extending beyond the four corners of its office into its employees' homes when they're working remotely, but also the fact that people are wondering when they ought to get people back into the office. And how those two issues interface, right? Well, we want to get you back as soon as possible and safely, but we're also facing this kind of indeterminate range of risk and liability that is a little bit hard to decipher when you're at home and working for us. And maybe we have some liability if you fall down the stairs on a break. 
Yeah, there's also two separate categories, if you will, which is right now, everybody's focused very much on the pandemic and risks related to health and safety arising from the pandemic. But I think what we might see as the pandemic eventually recedes in some way, shape or form is there's still going to be all of these issues around people wanting to work remotely. And so employers and employees negotiating what that new world looks like, what are the terms and conditions of employment? But, you know, I think to the example you raised, you can think through, you know, an employer who now wants employees to work in a physical space somewhere on some basis, employees who have their own priorities in terms of what that looks like. How do you find the appropriate risk allocation between those two things? And then if you had somebody who is working in another jurisdiction in a third space, what laws govern? What's the workplace? Who is responsible for setting up that space? Ultimately, how do you deal with tax questions and any risk related to, to taxation? Depending on an organization that might be multinational, what are the immigration issues associated with that? So it really implicates a whole continuum of risks. And that's why, you know, from our perspective, looking at it on an integrated basis in terms of, of mitigating that risk, but ultimately also finding the opportunity in that for an organization is, I mean, in a sense, the next frontier. Mm-hmm. And there is a discrimination element here too, or at least a, a risk of discrimination, because what about those employees who uh, choose to work exclusively from home or, or perhaps don't even have the choice? They, they, For whatever reason, they have to work exclusively from home now. What potential risks for discrimination um, are there? Yeah, so some of the risks that, that we might start to see are that for some workplaces, those people who go into the office might start to for example, get more opportunities for bigger projects. They may be seen by management more. And so there might be this implicit bias towards those who are physically present. And those individuals might be promoted at a faster rate. And as we know, a lot of times the burden of home care tends to fall to women, or there might be other issues that you know could arise from this discrepancy that we're seeing. And so as employers move into this more permanent state of a hybrid work environment, for example, we might start to see some tension with pay equity laws. We might start to see in the in the years down the line, some issues where employers have inadvertently created a situation where there's inequality and inequity in the workplace. And so I think employers really need to be cognizant of those concerns, those issues, and make sure they either develop policies or trainings or just kind of put a focus on that issue to try to avoid it as much as possible. One of the um, more immediate risks also is obviously with people who have now been working from home, you know, one of the, the immediate risks becomes, you know, has there really been an amendment to the employment contract also? So, you know, there's a great deal of commentary out there around the great resignation and Ultimately, flexibility seems to be the key driver for many employees, and there's a great deal of benefit in it, I think, also for employees and employers if, if, you know, obviously used strategically in a given circumstance. But to the extent that now there is some ambiguity around what are the terms and conditions of somebody's employment contract, are you required to return to the office when and under what conditions? you've got some risk around whether or not you've got a constructive dismissal, for example. And different employers have been dealing with it differently. I mean, 
many employers obviously have said, you know, you're going to be working remotely, but it's temporary. Other organizations have been a little bit less clear around people working from home and what the requirement will be in terms of coming back. And so what we might see again as the pandemic starts to recede and, and there's the ability to bring people back into a physical workspace is challenges from employees around well, no, the terms and conditions of my employment now, my employment agreement really is that I get to work from home or from some third space on some basis. And so I think we are going to see some of those cases as we move forward, maybe through 2022 and into 2023. And those will be very interesting to watch. And again, I think the circumstances of each case will, will, will be important to how there's decided, but certainly nearer term issues around that particular issue. Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? The how employment contracts and like the terms of them could have changed over the past two years just because of the changing context in which employees are working. I mean, you can see the difficulty that employers are facing here. I mean, how do they really preempt the liability risk of these constructive dismissal claims when they simply just want to encourage or have more employees back in the office, particularly in certain lines of work where it, it, it literally is it's more difficult to do the job remotely? It's one thing to predict the risk of these constructive dismissal claims, but how do you actually prevent that future liability risk? Is there anything practically that employers can do? Yeah, I think from a practical perspective, you know, it's a question of being really clear in terms of any measures that are in place, whether that's a communication to your employees or whether or not it's done by way of policy. I think where you're clear around this is a, a temporary measure or it's a measure in place until a certain point in time, at which point it'll be reviewed, depending on what, what current public health authority guidance might be, for example, is one way to do it. I mean, certainly employers and employees can open up the contract and renegotiate something if that's what they want to do and what's appropriate in their circumstances. That's probably more easily done where you're dealing with individuals or only a few people as opposed to a group. I think the wider question that a lot of organizations are looking at, though, is in their terms of their overall business strategy and culture and people strategy, what works for them? And I think if you look at that from the ground up and you say, ultimately, we want to attract and retain, obviously, top talent, what are those things that allow us to do that? What's the value proposition? You build your strategy off of that. If it makes sense flowing from that, that you need people in a physical workspace, whether full-time or on some other basis, then you can kind of design your policy and your negotiation strategy in terms of employment contracts around that. But um, very much a live issue. And I think it's difficult to conceive of an organization that isn't in some way, shape, or form grappling with those issues right now. I think another point to build off of Jeff's point is flexibility is going to be an important thing for employers to to just keep in mind as they move forward and to try to work with employees, especially when we have school closures and those situations that may come up. You may have a family member who has COVID or is sick and you need to take care of them. And so communication is key, but then also being flexible as much as possible within reason to ensure that you're not imposing unnecessary burdens on your employees who are juggling a lot of competing demands, especially in this really challenging time that we're living through. Yeah, that's good advice. And, and you have to imagine that to some extent, you know, the employment marketplace will correct for some of these things as, as potential employees 
have greater and greater expectations of flexibility in, in looking for jobs. This question of flexibility in remote work is part of a trend, if, if I may, of, of people sort of revisiting their relationships with their employers on a, on a grander scale with the great resignation, you know, in, in air quotes, being the most extreme example of that. And can you guys give us a sense of what some of those bigger picture trends are along with expectations about remote work and flexibility that you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one interesting discussion that has emerged over the course of the pandemic is where you've got a remote workforce, is there any basis on which to change or adjust their pay? And so I think we may see some interesting disputes around attempted pay adjustments, wage adjustments, salary adjustments for people who have decided to move somewhere smaller and that might have a lower cost of living. My own personal view on it is, I think to your point, Andrew, the market will ultimately correct for it. If you're paying for talent, you're paying for talent. And, and if that talent can be recruited from anywhere by any number of other organizations, ultimately the market's going to decide what the going rate is. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, the definition of the workspace evolving and the changing concept of what is work is no longer just about spending a fixed amount of face time in the office, but in, instead it's, it's output focused. It's based on a, a set of deliverables for people where the boundaries between work and home life aren't as clear. And so a key term that we're hearing in this respect is, is this right to disconnect. So can we talk a bit about an employee's right to disconnect from the office and perhaps the tension between an employer exercising enough control to provide a safe workspace at home, but at the same time, an employee having a right to disconnect from work? Yeah, it's absolutely a, a significant trend and question that's emerging and likely one that's going to have far-reaching impacts for some time to come. And in a sense, it's it's really the, you know, kind of the counterpoint to or the companion to flexibility, you know, which is a key driver for many employees. And and obviously the issue now becomes with the flexibility is where are the boundaries and the ability to be able to communicate with your coworkers, with clients, with customers at any point in time, especially when you're no longer located in the same place and people have chosen to work at different points in time, depending on what, um, what their days require, really raises a, a key question around when can somebody not be available? When does somebody stop work? And what are the employer's rights and obligations to contact somebody or to otherwise engage with somebody who's performing work for them? So a big issue. Over the last couple of years, uh, even pre-pandemic, there's been emerging trend in a number of jurisdictions in Europe have passed right to disconnect legislation with varying parameters. And most recently, in the last two months, we've seen Ontario pass the first Canadian jurisdiction legislation with right to disconnect requirements. And uh, the federal government is also considering whether or not there's legislation forthcoming in the federal sphere there. I think one of the issues that the pandemic has really highlighted as well is, is mental health of employees and the workforce. And my view is that a lot of these questions and these, these policy changes are being driven by the increasing awareness of the toll that this is all taking on employees. The right to disconnect, I think, is, is part of that. And we're also seeing a push for a four-day work week in some jurisdictions, pilot programs across the world, with a lot of interesting findings. Some people are, are finding that 
that workforces are sometimes more productive in those situations, employees are happier. And so I think we might see more of that in the coming years as we have this philosophical question of what is work and why am I doing it and the great resignation and all of these things coming together, I think we're going to see more push to create workplaces that promote mental health, that promote work-life balance, and that really ensure employee wellness and well-being in a way that maybe we haven't seen in the past several years. Yeah, and just on the right to disconnect, what will be interesting to see is because we are still very much in the infancy of that type of regulation in Canada is ultimately what are the rules and regulations that are in place? Currently, um, Ontario's legislation requires employers to have a policy relating to the ability to disconnect. There's a great deal of, of work still to be done, obviously, to understand what that might look like. But then also in terms of mitigating risk and understanding what enforcement might look like, are those going to be statutory penalties? Is there possibility of, of other civil or common law claims in relation to a breach of some, some right to disconnect under the employment contract? You know, to your point, Preston, are you going to see any sorts of claims around mental health if an employer is alleged to have breached those boundaries around an employee's ability to disconnect? And so Again, it really is um, a new frontier in terms of, of what employers and organizations might be facing by way of risk, but also to navigate through in terms of what does the workplace look like? I do think it is interesting breaking down what this right to disconnect and the four day working week and what these new concepts actually look like in practice, because, you know, theme in this conversation it's not a one-size-fits-all approach industries are different business models are different and for example if your business is is a kind of client service business that actually it's integral to the operation of your business to have your employees responsive law might be one of those industries right I mean how does the right to disconnect really fit into a business model where you do need employees to be available because that's what the clients and the customers need and also a second point to that is talking about penalties and liability risks for violations of rights to disconnect I mean how is it going to work in practice I mean will it be possible to have your employees contract out of those requirements. Is that one strategy that certain employers might take is to say, well, yeah, we have this policy, but we we require you to kind of opt out of the regulations that provide for a right to disconnect. And how enforceable would that provision be? I think those are all great questions. And I think there's, you know, there's the legal component and then there's the practical component. You know, we don't know yet in terms of, of Canadian law, what that might look like. As it stands now, we've really only got the Ontario legislation, which is, you know, really only under two months in terms of of coming into force. And so what might be the exclusions? So, for example, uh, are there certain professions and other job classes that are excluded, uh, much like they would be under employment standards legislation? Presumably, there will be some consideration of that. Is there an ability to contract out? That will be interesting to see if that's something that's built in, because, you know, on the one hand, you can imagine there are a variety of industries and, and sectors that just cannot practically operate without the ability to, to have some greater fluidity. Or is it something that, you know, you can, an employer would be able to apply for an exemption for, or otherwise, you know, is the position going to be, 
the law has been passed to ensure that employers respect those boundaries and guardrails, and so contracting out might not be enforceable. So I think those are all all valid legal considerations. It's going to be very interesting to see how it unfolds and, and what other jurisdictions in Canada might do. And then the practical component really is, you know, from an organization standpoint, it's really down to are you able to attract and retain the talent that you need? And so obviously one of the approaches will be being upfront before hiring as to what the requirements of the job are. But also I think organizations are going to have to think through just from a people strategy perspective, if they are not flexible enough or seen by potential candidates as providing, you know, employee value proposition that that's sufficiently attractive, are they going to have issues? And so I think it's a mix of the legal and the practical, you know, that that organizations are going to need assistance in terms of thinking through how those things balance out. And linked to this flexible working model, how do employers reasonably monitor what their employees are doing at home? Because every employer needs to be able to assess efficiency, right? And and how long employees are spending on certain tasks. But, but is there presumably a, a privacy element of employers monitoring what their employees are doing when they're not in the office? And where is the line? So I think that's also a, a question that is going to play out in the next few years. In one case last year, there was an, a, an employee who was working from home and, and she was subject to twice daily check-ins she received questions about her work from home routine, information from her social media was collected, and it was found that there were privacy breaches in that scenario based on a specific legislation and the specific circumstances of that complainant's work. So, you know, I think, again, the question has to be context specific. It has to be something that employers have to consider about what makes an attractive workplace and, and what kind of culture do they want to shape. Every employer must consider their specific situation and look at what's reasonable in their workplace. That's also where I think going forward, a more intentional defining of the workplace for remote workers, you know, between an employer and an employee is going to be important, whether in the employment contract or by way of policies that are incorporated into the employment contract. A clear understanding of what the workplace is, and that may include times in which somebody is available and times in which they're not, just as one example, might be very helpful because then in terms of assessing what's reasonable, you know, if if you've got an agreement, for example, between an employee and employer that they are going to be available online for for work-related discussion between, you know, 9 and 6 p.m., then it's reasonable to contact the employee about work-related matters within that space of time, checking on them outside of those hours, for example, in the evening or on the weekend or, or any other time that it's sort of been defined as not being work time might not be reasonable. And then to Preston's point too, it really depends on, you know, what, what is the monitoring? Is it, you know, checking into task for status update on a deliverable or is it surreptitious monitoring of, of keystroke logs on the you know on your laptop or or something else like that? Or is it you know are you getting a call every hour on the hour to see if you're still sitting in front of your laptop? I mean, all of those things obviously matter in terms of, of what's reasonable. And so again, I think just sort of that key point around employers and employees being more intentional around their understanding of what is the workplace may be a trend that we see more of. 
Okay, finally, to, to wrap up, what are the other developing trends that we will see in the context of everything we've talked about going into 2022 and beyond? What what new things do you think are on the horizon and what can employers do to mitigate the risks arising from them? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, there's so many there's so many new issues that are emerging and I you know, one of the points we haven't touched on yet, but um, just thinking back to one of Andrew's earlier comments, um, you know, around uh, people being involved in, in online activity to a greater extent in terms of job search, obviously employers are also utilizing technology for remote recruitment activity more so than ever before. And so one of the issues we might see is are there issues around bias um, and discrimination related to the use of technology or AI-assisted recruitment efforts, which is a very interesting question in terms of ordinarily sort of the traditional approach to um, advising employers against you know any practices that might be viewed as discriminatory during the recruitment process is based around human judgment and human interaction. Now the question becomes, what parameters do you need to think through with your organization or your third-party service provider if you're employing uh, AI-assisted technology in recruitment? And you know you're dealing with people who may be far across the world that you're dealing with, and and so in terms of how you're screening those individuals and otherwise engaging with them, it does raise again sort of a new frontier in terms of considerations around human rights and discrimination and accommodation considerations. Preston, Jeff, thank you very much. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com slash disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.